the reading today is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 15. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood beside him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owe money to a moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 15. Now neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave them both the debts. Now which of them loved him more, do you think? Someone replied, well, I suppose the one who had the greatest debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman, from the time I entered, hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her greater love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us. We thank you now mostly for your word. Uh, and we pray today as we look at this, um, particularly this topic of what it means to live in your world uh, in the way you have created us in terms of the, our sexuality. We do pray for soft hearts to hear your word, wills that are ready to obey it. We pray for your glory. Amen. Well, friends, earlier this year there was controversy in New South Wales. I don't know if you heard this. You may have heard this controversy. There was a, a, it sort of kicked up a bit of a stink in the media when... Uh, the, the, when three books that were used in the Special Religious, religious Education Program, or SRE, or uh, they call it Scripture in Schools over there, 
Uh, three books that were used or sort of attached to that program were banned by the Department of Education, by the, by the Minister. Uh, there was a complaint made uh, and very quickly, without consultation, the books were banned. Um, the books were all by well-known Australian authors and they've been used for quite some time. The authors are all evangelical Christians who hold to the historic Christian uh, faith and the books were being used in these classes to kind of present uh, a classical understanding of Christianity, of the Christian gospel to the kids and talk about what it meant to uh, believe and uh, live as a Christian. Um, but according to the group that made the complaint, they contained dangerous and outdated messages that would cause real and significant damage to the people who heard them, to the kids who heard them. Uh, that was, of course, all about what the books said about sex, how the books presented sex. They, they weren't all, one of them was particularly about sex, but the others were all about other things, uh, the other two. Um, but that was really the issue that was honed in on. The most entertaining part of the whole story was I found this photo by a couple of guys uh, with the banned books. I don't know if you can see them there. Um, Orthodox Christian books sort of being exotic contraband. This is what they're trying to sort of, you know, they, they were sneaking these books around. Okay, so that was you know, uh, sort of the most entertaining part of it for me. But uh, uh, it is a big issue in our culture, a huge issue for us. And increasingly, this question, one big question, why believe in God when Christians are so narrow about sex, uh, is increasingly the big question for so many people. A uh, huge question. Go to the next slide. My friends, I don't want to take anything for, for granted this morning. It is a big issue. And I know that there will be a, a lot of uh, diversity of opinion there is in our society. And I assume there is among us as well here today, uh, perhaps here today or perhaps uh, listening on the web, wherever you are, from, from the book banning uh, to the ongoing debate about same-sex marriage. Uh, this is a huge question. Haven't we, haven't we as a society, haven't we moved on from outdated and repressive teachings about sexuality? Haven't we moved on? Haven't we seen that what used to be considered moral behaviour is actually immoral? It's actually the new sexual immorality is what used to be held as Christian morality and sex to promote a view of sex that's so narrow so restrictive, uh, isn't it true that the Christian view of sex is actually the most immoral view out there, right? Uh, to invite the privacy of someone else's bedroom uh, and to tell them how to behave, to heap up guilt on people for breaking the rules and all this. It, these are key issues for our society and they are coloured by very real failings, are they not, of Christian people in this area. Now, we don't want to shy away from those at all. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or perhaps listening, uh, perhaps this is, you know, maybe you are a Christian, but this is just, you know, it is your big issue. It's your, one of your big questions. Something you're wrestling with. You're so welcome here today. Perhaps you yourself feel hurt by the words and actions of maybe even Christian people in churches. If, I'm not going to defend churches this morning. I'm not going to have a self-defense. 
And if anyone has been hurt in that area, I just want to offer my apology for that. Not, not about, we're not going to sort of have a self-defense this morning. What we are, what I would like to do uh, is rather than commit, defend churches, I want to commend Jesus. I want to commend Jesus to you. That's what we're going to try and do today through this really beautiful story uh, in Luke's uh, account of Jesus' life, his biography of Jesus. Through this story, uh, we're going to use the story, but we're also going to take a few detours along the way to kind of trace out the Bible's big picture, its vision for human sexuality, or for what it means to be created uh, uh, in this particular way, the Bible's vision of sex. And it is breathtaking, beautiful, and offers hope and peace for all people. So I hope you'll stick with us, okay? Uh, but if you have your Bibles open, it'll probably help you to, as we do work through this, this particular story. Um, there's also, as Steve mentioned earlier, a, um, an outline in the handouts that might help you uh, stay with us. It's a story of to- two opposites, right? Two totally different people. You couldn't get more different people, okay? So there's Simon, the, he's the morally upright, he's the good man, he's the Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were a kind of a strict religious order, you know, sect, uh, well, not a sect, uh, a religious sort of, uh, they were one of the religion, religious leaders of the day. He's a good guy, this guy, okay? He's a good guy. He's an earnest. He took life seriously. He took his religion seriously. The name Pharisee means kind of set apart. Uh, so he, 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 he took his religion seriously. He's on lots of levels an impressive man. And then you get this woman. So that's sort of, there's two extremes, right? This woman. All we, we don't know her name. All we hear is she's from a local town. Uh, and that she's lived a sinful life. Simon knows her. He calls her a sinner. Uh, she's someone who's, who's lived her life in opposition to God. He's lived her life rebelling against God. And as we read it, as readers, we're meant to join the dots, right? <laughs> we're meant to join the dots. Uh, and what everyone around town knows about her, what her, what her sinful life involves, is all to do with sex. She might, she, it's possible that she might have been someone who sort of slept around a lot, but it's most likely that this woman is a prostitute. So she, uh, so she, uh, her sex is her trade, how she makes her living. And Simon, Simon calls her a sinner. You see that as we read through. Uh, Simon calls her a sinner. But friends, and this is a critical point I want to make here, and maybe for you this is an infuriating point. Okay? Simon calls her a sinner. And did you notice what Jesus says? Did you notice, or actually, what he doesn't say? He never contradicts Simon. Uh, He doesn't say, Simon, you hypocrite, don't be so judgmental. How dare you judge what she does behind closed doors? Let her do what she wants. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He even goes further. Do you notice at the end of the story, he calls her a big sinner. Okay? She has many sins. She has many sins. It, for, I mean, that's kind of on one level, for many people, an infuriating thing that Jesus wouldn't sort of speak up against Simon at this point. And yet, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, we kind of have a thing in our society where 
you either endorse someone totally or you, or you hate them and <laughs> there's no middle ground. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't endorse this woman's life, her, her sexual past. But he's so far from being a kind of hateful bigot towards her, isn't he? Isn't he? Uh, he never endorses her past. He says she has many sins. And without any contradiction, he also loves this woman so completely and so deeply and so tenderly. Well, what's going on here, friends? What's, uh, what's going on for Jesus uh, as he does this, uh, as, he, as he sort of interacts with this woman, what's going on for him? To understand it, we need to see that this story in Luke, it taps into the biggest story of the whole Bible. It, taps, it, it only makes sense when you kind of see it in its biggest picture. And the biggest story of the whole Bible, you see it in the outline there, uh, the next little point, uh, the, big, the big first thing to say about sex from the whole story of the Bible is that it is very good. It is good. It is very good. Uh, right at the start of the Bible, if you uh, go to that next slide, Genesis 2, uh, the, the, after the creation of the world that is stamped, good, 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 very good. Uh, Genesis 2, we get this account. The man said, uh, after the woman has been created uh, uh, as his partner, he says, uh, the, the kind of expression here is one of real sort of um, longing and relief and delights. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the person who writes it right, gives this edit editorial sort of comment here. That's why a man, uh, man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is where the Bible starts its picture of human sexuality. Uh, we, uh, human beings, created in this kind of relationship, naked and unashamed. Men and women created equally in God's image. Do you pick that up as we read through? Entirely equal uh, in their worth, in their dignity, in God's image, but also created differently, complementary to each other. Okay, complementary to each other, male and female. In the Bible story, gender is not a social construct, uh, not just something that we kind of make up ourselves. It is a gift from the Creator God. And the Bible calls this equal but different pair. Did you see that there? Uh, before when we read through, the Bible calls this pair that are equal but different come together. It calls them one flesh. One flesh. It's, it, you know, obviously there's a physical thing going on there. It's kind of a physical description of what's going on. But it's also, it's actually a deeper uh, phrase to encapsulate this relationship, this family unit that's been brought together. Uh, and, friends, the big point of all that is just to say, that in the Bible's story for Christians, all of that is very good. It is good. Um, and uh, we just, Christian people, just need to keep saying that. Um, in a world that, uh, uh, and perhaps you also, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but uh, in a world that sees a Christian view of sex essentially as saying uh, sex is bad, the fundamental thing we say is no, it is very good. It's a wonderful gift from God. The Bible has a whole book dedicated to, to love and sex. It's called the Song of Songs. 
don't know, should I read some of it out to you? It's a little bit racy. <laughs> Place, well, this is, this is uh, not the racist bit, but you get the picture. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. You know, uh, uh, you get the picture, right? In the Bible, for Christians, sex is a good thing, it's a very good thing. God made it. Christians can never be anti-sex. The Bible has the highest view of sex. It is good, very good, and given by a loving God for his people, his creatures, to enjoy. But friends, because it's so good, it is because it's so good, is at the same so powerful. At the same so powerful. And because of that, God gives boundaries for it. That's not a repressive thing. It's what, what any of us do, right? When we have something that's precious to us, you sort of put boundaries around it. If you want to just flip the next screen up. Um, uh, my sister had one of these cars, right? I don't know if you remember the old Datsun 180B. Uh, and I inherited it along the way eventually. And um, it was the biggest piece of junk I've ever seen. Uh, it, the, the engine fell out of it while I was driving. Um, it had to get towed, and, and I sort of it just made it to the place where I was, where I was uh, living. And uh, it was such a piece of junk, I had to pay for someone to come and take it away. You know, like, the scrappers wouldn't come and get it for free. Okay, uh, but yeah, okay, so that's a, yeah. But imagine, imagine, you know, some rich relative overseas passes away or something, uber rich, you know, incredibly rich, and I inherit the most expensive car in the world. This is uh, the, the Koenigsegg CCXR Trevita, worth a handy 4.8 million US, okay? Uh, you, I'm going to put some pretty strict boundaries around this car, right? Uh, no more paddock bashing. No more lending it to mates. And that's, I mean, that's not a repressive thing, is it, for me to do that? Uh, but it's so that... You know, we can enjoy it as it was meant to be enjoyed, as it was made to be enjoyed, right? At its best and at its fullest. And it's also so that other people don't get hurt by it. It's also so other people don't get hurt. I'm not going to let a P player take my 4.7 litre twin, twin supercharged V8 engine Koenigsegg, right? I'm not going to let a P player take that for a spin with his mates on the open road, am I? I mean, that's, and that's not being cruel. And repressive, it's because I care for them, I want them to be safe with something incredibly powerful. <coughs> well, I, anyway, now it's not a perfect analogy, right? So, you know, well, on one level, forget the car thing, but you get the point, right? The Bible's view of sex is that it's both incredibly valuable and incredibly powerful. A precious gift given by God in which a man and woman can be naked and unashamed together coming together in body and spirit as one flesh. And in the Bible's story, it is marriage, uh, that exclusive long, uh, lifelong union between these two equal but different people. It is marriage that is the boundary around which God has uh, fenced this wonderful, precious and powerful gift. That relationship... Uh, that's guarded by the public promises that are made when you get married. Uh, 
Um, that is the place God has given for sex to be experienced, enjoyed, properly, fully, the way it was meant to be. And also so that we would be protected by its misuse. So friends, uh, sex is very good in the Christian worldview. Uh, it is very powerful and God graciously gives a context within which to enjoy a lifelong, exclusive, one-flesh marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, and Jesus himself upholds this. I, I do, we don't have time to go here, but this, if you wanted to look at Matthew 19, uh, the start of the first little bit of that, and also Mark chapter 10, if you're taking notes. But just to say that Jesus himself upholds this as, um, as the right sort of context for this. He upholds this view of marriage. Okay. The first detour, sex is very good. Second sort of stop on our detour away from this story. While it's very good, it is not God. While it's very good, it is not God. In the Bible story, uh, the first humans reject God's rule. And ever since, Ever since, we've been putting other things in God's place. We give our heart to other things, to other people, to power, to money, and to sex as well. We make sex into an ultimate thing, right? We make sex into a God. We look to it to get our meaning and our significance and our purpose. We pin our hopes on it to give us happiness. And we, so we make a God of sex. We make it into an ultimate thing, something that we have to have at all costs. The trouble is, while sex is very good, it makes a cruel and unforgiving God. It is very good, but it is not God. We worship, And when we worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, when we rebel against God's good design and rule for us in every area, not just in this one, but including this one, when we rebel against God's good design and rule for us, that, that rebellion, that refusal to trust God as our good and loving maker and king who knows what's best for us, that rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. That rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. Sin cuts us off from God and it places us under his judgment and wrath. And this woman is a great sinner. She is a great sinner. She has lived a life ignoring God's design in this area, particularly for sex. And here she is at Simon's party. Okay. Can you picture it, right? Uh, here she is. She comes in this culture, uh, special meals, um, meals in front of important people's houses. Uh, they were open to the public, you, often. They were often open to, so people could come in, the, the, sort of, uh, the important people would sit, would, would be at the table in the middle, and other people from around the town could come in and just sort of stand against the wall, you know, get, and sink into the background and listen in. So, sort of try and pick up some interesting bit of conversation. So, so it's not all that unusual for uh, an uninvited guest to come into one of these kinds of meals. But they would be invisible, okay? They'd slink around the edges to listen in. But not this woman. Did you see that in verse 37? She just walks right in, right up, and not just walks in, 
right up to the guest of honour, right? Right up to Jesus himself. Uh, she's carrying, and we're told, an alabaster jar of perfume. It was very expensive, and it's probably the same perfume she's used to attract her many lovers. She's come to pour this perfume over Jesus' feet. She's come to pour it over Jesus' feet as a sign of her thankfulness and devotion to him. But as you read on the scene, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder, right? Um, so another sort of bit of information to our understand the story. In those days, uh, you would recline. You've noticed it says Jesus was reclining. Uh, well, they reclined at the table. Uh, they literally did that, right? So uh, in this kind of a meal, you'd lie down on a kind of couch uh, with your, you know, propped up on one side, feet out behind you, and you'd you know, up on one elbow maybe and use your other hand to eat. So you'd sort of like a spokes of a wheel, everyone going out from the table. Uh, that's how they have this kind of a meal. And this woman goes up to Jesus as he's reclining, okay? So sort of lying on his couch, facing the table. Perhaps the first thing she knows about her is the, the feeling of her tears on his dusty feet. Uh, maybe it's the smell wafting in as she comes in. But as she comes to Jesus to wash his feet with this perfume that she brought, she finds herself weeping uncontrollably. Before she can pour the perfume, his feet are drenched with her tears. Jesus' feet are drenched with her tears. It is a it's an awkward, I mean, it was awkward before. It just keeps getting more awkward, right? This scene. Uh, I'm growing into more of a bit of a sook myself. I find myself tearing up more and more as I get to know God better and uh, as I grow up a little. But I'm always aware, I'm always aware of people around me, right? And you, I'm sure you are too. You kind of always be conscious of who's around you. And that's okay, I guess. There's something appropriate about that, right? Um, but have you ever had the experience of seeing someone weeping so intensely, so all-consuming, that they just don't care what anyone else thinks about them? Someone who's been through an experience so life-changing that for this moment, everyone else becomes invisible and they just weep. I think I can only sort of bring to mind a really small handful of times I've actually witnessed that, that kind of uh, intense weeping. I think that's what's, that's what's being pictured here, right? The, the way she is, is pictured, the word that's used here, actually it means she drenches his feet. So she is absolutely pouring out tears at Jesus. She's weeping so much. And then it gets even more shocking. Okay, so, you know, we're going from awkward to shocking to even more shocking, right? Uh, do you notice what happens next? Maybe, you know, she, I don't imagine she's thinking this isn't sort of uh, a pre-planned thing, but uh, in the moment she lets down her hair. She lets down her long hair to dry his feet. And in this culture, for a woman to do that, uh, in public was actually grounds for divorce. <laughs> it's a serious thing, right? Your hair, uh, it's a sign of intimacy and vulnerability. Uh, something to let down your hair like that. 
something reserved for the bedroom, okay? But she doesn't care. She doesn't care. She kisses and weeps and dries his feet with her long hair. And then she pours out this perfume over Jesus' feet. So, I mean, what a scene, right? Incredible. Everyone around sort of knows who she is, okay? They know what's coming, you know, they know who she is. And you can see everyone else in shock. Some of them, I imagine, would be, well, Simon, we know, is outraged. Um, just outraged. And those who sort of view her with disgust. And, and you can picture their outrage, can't you? <laughs> this woman coming here to Jesus like this. Maybe there's some others who are just so embarrassed they, you know, kind of shrink, where they wish they could melt into the floor at this train wreck unraveling before them. Everyone is tense and uncomfortable. Everyone is, except Jesus. Everyone except Jesus. How does Jesus respond to this scandalous after this woman. Well, what he doesn't do, he doesn't sort of recoil and sort of kick her away and push her away in disgust. I mean, Simon wants her to do that, right? You see, you can read there, Simon muttering under his breath, if this man were a prophet, verse 39, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus, I mean, that's what's, you know, that's what's in Simon's heart. And Jesus knows his heart. It's great, isn't it? He, he uh, answers Simon, even though Simon didn't say it to Jesus. He sort of mutters it under his breath, but Jesus knows what's going on. He looks at Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And friends, whenever Jesus says that, you watch out, okay? You know, if you, I have something to tell you, watch out. And as he does so often, he does this so often, he tells a story, right? a parable. Uh, uh, it's a story that's designed to kind of draw you in knock you around a bit and spit you out seeing the world differently. Seeing the world differently according to God's kingdom. Uh, it is a short little parable, but it's brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. Verse 41, if you have your Bibles there, just uh, real quickly sort of skim through it. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Uh, that, that's sort of about two years pay. Okay, it's a lot of money. Um, 500 denarii, the other 50, it's about two months pay. So you can get the difference between these two guys, right? Two years pay versus two it's months. Um, neither of them had the money to pay him back, we read. So, and just so briefly, you can kind of skim over it, but it's so wonderfully. So he forgave the debts of both. He forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? And Simon's a logical guy, right? He knows the answer. But he reluctantly answers him, I suppose, I suppose the one who had the bigger debts. And it's obvious what's going on here, right? It's obvious what's going on here, right? Uh, Jesus puts Simon in the story with this woman. Uh, Jesus and the woman are the story, right? She's the one who owes 500. He's the one who owes 50, Okay. Now, some people have, uh, have read this and thought, well, that's a bit strange. And maybe it means that Simon doesn't have as much to be thankful for, right? He, he's not, you know, he doesn't have that much. Right? So he just doesn't have as much to be thankful for. You know? But 
Uh, I think to think that is actually to miss the whole point of what's going on here in this story. Did you get it there uh, in verse 42? The whole point is that neither of them could pay it back. Neither of them could pay it back. In the eyes of the law, both of them were in exactly the same situation. Neither of them could pay it back. They were both in jail. They were both in debt. And they had no... They, none, neither of them could pay it back. And the whole point of what Jesus says next is to say to Simon, Simon, if only you saw things clearly. If only you could get past your lie of social respectability and moral self-righteousness, you would see that you are just as much a desperate sinner as she is. And if you could do that, you would love me like she does. You are in the same situation as her. Do you see this woman? He says to Simon. Interesting kind of question. I imagine he's seen nothing else since she came into the room. Do you see this woman, Simon? Perhaps you hadn't noticed her. I imagine Simon's noticed no one else. Jesus says, I came into your house and you didn't give me any water to wash my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. I, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Her great love for Jesus shows that her sins have been forgiven. Her, this, her love doesn't earn forgiveness with Jesus. We're meant to see that before she's coming, she's already been forgiven. Uh, we're not told the backstory of that, but perhaps she's been in the crowds as she's heard Jesus speaking about forgiveness in God's kingdom. And she's come here overwhelmed with thankfulness, trusting that Jesus would forgive her. And she's come to pour her perfume. Well, Jesus sends the woman away at the end. You can see Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He sends the woman away in peace. And we're meant to read that she leaves this interaction with Jesus. She leaves it. A changed woman. She is a changed woman, right? Her past, and this is so important, her past was no barrier to coming to Jesus. Absolutely no barrier whatsoever to coming to Jesus. But once she had come to him, she couldn't go back to her old life. Anyone can come to Jesus, but if you come like this woman... Not like Simon, right? Not like Simon, sort of detached and um, assessing Jesus, sort of having him over for dinner to see if he's, you know. Not like Simon. If you come like this woman, broken by your sin and overwhelmed with thanks for Jesus' forgiveness, no one who comes like that can go away unchanged. No one who comes to Jesus like that can leave unchanged. It'll change everything. And you see that actually in what she did. What did she do with her, her jar of perfume, right? 
you see it in what she did. This tool of her trade, this symbol of her old life, she pours it all out. She pours it all out at Jesus' feet. Jesus' forgiveness and grace was totally free. But it was a transforming forgiveness. A transforming grace. And it's always that way. There's one more thing tucked away in this story, friends, that is, we need to pull out. And that's this. Who is it that pays the debts in the story? Who is it that sort of pays the debts for these two guys? Who is it that absorbs the cost of them? It's the money lender, right? Uh, they are forgiven freely. But there is a cost to that forgiveness, isn't it? The money lender has to absorb that cost himself. He has to say, I'm going to take a hit for you. I'm going to take this cost on myself. Forgiveness, friends, is never without a cost. It is freely given to us. Uh, but this story of Jesus opens up, leaves this question open, actually. Who is going to pay this woman's debt? How is Jesus going to pay her debt that she can't pay herself? By using this story, it leaves this question open. And, uh, and who's going to pay it for her? Jesus knows, right? The woman at this point, I think, she just trusts that Jesus can do it. And she's just overwhelmed. But Jesus knows what it will cost him. He will absorb the cost of her debts. He will pay for her sin, her sin that deserved death. It deserved death and she knew it. If only Simon could see clearly, he'd know his sin deserved death too. And that is what, friends, the rest of Luke's story about Jesus is all about, right? <coughs> Jesus himself absorbing the cost of our forgiveness, freely given to us. Himself absorbing it by taking it on himself at the cross. Placing himself under this judgment, bearing God's judgment on sin by dying for us. And once we see that, friends, once we see that that both these things, everyone is a helpless debtor who can't pay for themselves. Uh, and that Jesus took our debt, the cost of our rebellion, our sin, on himself at the cross. Once we see that, well, friends, the woman's response is not a kind of irrational, over-emotional thing that we can brush off. Don't you see? The woman's response is actually the only... Rational response to this kind of situation. I mean, it might not look like her, but deep, genuine wonder, amazement, and thanks to this Jesus. Friends, in order to understand uh, what's going on here for Jesus, we've looked at the Bible's sort of backstory. Um, Sex is very good, but it is not God. And Jesus offers forgiveness for sexual sinners, for all sinners. But there's one more thing, just very quickly, that we need to touch on in the Bible's story of, the, of sex, which is rather than look back to the, to the creation, is to see this next part of our hand out there, that sex itself is a signpost. It's one more critical thing. Uh, that this story, uh, this story touches on sex is good, uh, whether you, uh, uh, Jesus brings forgiveness for sinners, 
but sex is a signpost. One author wrote this, uh, what, sort of put it in his char uh, a character in one of his books, you can get the details off me later, but a uh, very memorable kind of quote. He said this, the young man who rings the bell of the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell of the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And, you know, on one level you kind of think, what's, what's he going on? What's he saying there? But it's actually, that is in line with what the Bible says about sex. Sex and marriage are signposts, and this, friends, is just unbelievable. Actually, it's wonderful. They are signposts pointing to the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. Um, the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters to a church in Ephesus, he writes about this. If you want to look it up, Ephesians chapter 5, he speaks about this two becoming one flesh, this intimate marriage relationship, and he says, he says, I am telling you a great mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. I am actually I am speaking about Christ and the church. Incre Incredible thing to say. And then you get the end of the Bible story, Revelation, where the whole scene at the end of Revelation is, uh, the, the whole thing is sort of uh, overtaken with a, a wedding, right? It is a wedding. Uh, the end of the Bible story is a marriage party, okay? The wedding of the bride, of, of the lamb. The wedding of the lamb has come. The bride is now here. Heaven is a wedding party where Jesus fully has his bride, the church, his bride that he loved to the death. Do you see what's going on here, friends? The intimacy and vulnerability of sex, of being naked and unashamed, of being known by another person and loved, even though they know you. The Bible says that's the relationship Jesus is making with his people. Perfect intimacy, being completely known to the depths in all your brokenness. He knew all about the woman, right? Of course he knew everything. Completely known. And perfectly loved. And forgiven and accepted more deeply than we can imagine, friends. And if that, if sex is a signpost, if that's what it's pointing to, this relationship, do you see what that means? It is a good gift. It's not God. But if it's a signpost, what does that mean? It means you don't have to have it. You don't have to have it. I mean, that in itself is probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say in our world, in our culture that just says you have to at all costs worship at this altar no it's a signpost pointing to something far more wonderful and eternal sex is good, it is very good but it's not God it's a gift to be enjoyed and to be enjoyed in the way God designed it but it's not ultimate it is a signpost pointing to the greater reality of Jesus and his church. And if you've got Jesus, if you're part of his family of love, the church, you will miss out on nothing. 
There is no fear of missing out. Not eternally. Not eternally. You don't have to go through life anxious about missing out on anything. And you see this woman, she got that. She got it. She saw that... Why did she pour out her, her perfume? She saw that Jesus could give her fully what she'd been searching for her whole life. So friends, uh, we just we need to draw things to close here. But uh, this is the Bible's sort of big picture of sex, sort of zoned in on one story between someone who had lived their life totally against God's design for sex and who Jesus welcomed in and transformed. But the question we sort of started with is this question of are Christians narrow, right? Are we uh, are Christian people narrow about sex? Well, I want to answer and just finish by saying, Yes, we are, and no, we're not. Okay, so, you know, sorry to not satisfy you on that. Yes and no. Uh, the Christian story is one. I mean, you picked that. I don't need to go into that. It is one in which God creates the world a particular way. He puts in place a moral framework in the world. Uh, and that, that's, that includes our sex lives. But in another deep sense, the Christian message about sex is actually the broadest view of sex possible, right? It's not narrow at all. All of us, everyone, is in a terrible debt we can't pay. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are. We have all fallen short and we all can't pay. All of us are sexual sinners and we all owe a debt to God that it is out of our control to pay. The God that we have rebelled against. And the, do you see, you know, like on one level, on the deepest level, this is the broadest view. But it gets even more wonderful. The wonder of Jesus oh, is that he paid. He, all of us are debtors and Jesus paid the debt. All of us are debtors and Jesus paid in full our debt on the cross. And he offers that to all people, no matter where you've come from, what you've done, whether you're like Simon, whether you're like this woman, Jesus offers his free forgiveness and a new life to everyone who comes to him in faith. To everyone who trusts in what he has done. Those, those of us, friends, for who this is a, just, this is a big question, um, at the very least, what I hope from this morning is... Uh, Maybe to show that the Christian, I hope you can see the Christian view of sex on its own terms and not the kind of um, distorted view that gets presented in the, in the press. Uh, I hope you can see also that someone who trusts in this Jesus, that for someone who trusts in this Jesus, the Christian view of sex is wonderful and life-giving. It is good but there's such freedom in knowing that it's not ultimate, it's not God. And there's something that points to something far more wonderful and all-encompassing, the intimacy of Christ with his church in the new creation. Perhaps, though, friends, perhaps you are drawn to this Jesus like this woman is. Uh, you can come to Jesus anytime. The woman didn't need to get all her stuff in order before she came. All she needed to do was recognise her own brokenness and come, come trusting Jesus.
coming to him will change you. It will impact your sex life. Just like this woman. But once you come to him, friends, once you come to him, you realise that everything you're looking for, all of your deepest desires to be fully known and fully loved, they're all wonderfully, completely met in him. And you'll find love this woman, it'll be a joy to pour out your perfume at his feet. Let's pray together, shall we? Can you pray? Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a good God who gives good gifts to your people, to your world. Thank you for the good gift of sex. Thank you that you delight in your people, enjoying the good gifts you give them. Thank you that you care for us enough to give us um, uh, the right boundaries within which to enjoy your gifts. Please keep us from making a God of sex. Please assure us that there with Jesus is always forgiveness when we come turning away from our sin and clinging to him. And for all of us, Lord, please show us the glory and wonder of what you are making, what you are doing and what you will do in the new heavens and the new earth when all things will be made right. Thank you that sex in a very powerful way points to that, to that kind of relationship we'll enjoy with you. Uh, we long for that, Father. Please keep us faithful to you. In the meantime, in Jesus' name. Amen.